Welcome to Belonging and Becoming, a podcast from Asbury University. Each month, we'll share an interview with an Asbury graduate whose life reminds us of the incredible ways God is at work. Today, we welcome Andrea Baker from the class of 97. She's the executive director of Word Made Flesh Bolivia, an organization dedicated to offering opportunities for holistic transformation for those affected by sexual exploitation. Andrea has spent almost 20 years dedicated to empowering others to move towards freedom and wholeness. She was interviewed in Bolivia via a digital internet connection by Asbury University President Dr. Kevin Brown. You'll hear a few minor technical transmission issues, but the truths she shares should still be clear. Here's that interview. Andrea, Happy New Year to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. And you are speaking to us right now from Bolivia. Are you in La Paz? I'm just outside of La Paz. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I, I wanted to talk about your time at Asbury, certainly the work that you do now. But before we get into your background with Asbury, could you just provide our listeners a snapshot of who you are and what you do right now in the field? Let's see. I graduated from Asbury in 97 and have been living in Bolivia since 2001. So this is almost 20 years here. Mm -hmm. My husband and I, also an Asbury graduate, um, came here to simply serve among the poor. And we found a need among sexually exploited women. And so we started an outreach that has grown over the years. Uh, We have four boys and they were all born here. And... Yeah, that's what we're doing. We work with sexually exploited women. We go and we do street outreach in the brothels. We have a drop-in center where moms can come and learn skills and uh, work on the hard stuff of inner healing and moving past their circumstances. We work with their children for like preventative um, care and to really kind of address cycles of violence that we had seen repeated in family in generational cycles. And then we we started a, a micro enterprise to provide employment to women who are ready to leave the streets. And we do some advocacy as well in terms of uh, working with churches about sexual violence, gender violence, and just kind of breaking down the barriers of all the stigma that comes with that. Mm-hmm. So, You and your husband decided, uh, as you put it, to live and work among the poor. I'm curious, did you bring that missional reflex and desire with you to Asbury, or was that something that was kindled and cultivated during your time here? Oh, certainly kindled at Asbury. (laughs) Everything about um, my life really began at Asbury. Mm. Yeah. I wasn't a Christian when I stepped onto campus as a freshman. Uh, gave my life to Jesus, freshman orientation. I re- specifically remember the sermon from Prof. Lauder that year. Hmm. Uh, gave my life to Jesus, met my husband that first semester. And that first year, I went on my very first mission trip with WGM to Bolivia. Was that a, a VIA trip? Uh, yeah, I think it was. <laughs> I think it was with Ron Brown. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, my mom and dad always, you know, traveled and showed us a love for the world and love for people. But turning that into a vision of reaching the world or sharing Jesus to the world was a new thing that was certainly cultivated at Asbury. At what point did you have a sense that you were going to go into missions? Uh, when, when you talk about that, that sense, that calling uh, being kindled at Asbury, when did you know that this would uh, constitute your future? Yeah, that's kind of a funny story. Um, I don't think any of our journey was very clear ahead of time. I feel like so much of our process has just been one next step of obedience. Mm -hmm. So when I first went to Bolivia in 94, I did a number of different mission trips um, to other places over the years. And I don't know, for me, there was something just very special about Bolivia. And so I vowed that I would return someday. I returned again a couple of years later, did an internship, and Andy and I had been dating for a couple of years then. And I re specifically remember coming back um, <laughs> after that second trip and just feeling really torn between marriage and a desire to return to South America. Lord, I think, was really faithful in that process as we were discerning. And I remember taking a month to pray together. Mm -hmm. And there was just such a peace about marrying uh, without any clarity about what that would mean beyond marriage. And so we got married and I, I think I just set aside a dream for Bolivia. I had studied public relations and just wasn't feeling completely at home in that role. I really... I really value authenticity and I, there was something there that just didn't quite, it just, it wasn't fitting for me wanting to kind of like promote something that may or may not have been authentic. I don't know. And so I, I took some time and decided to study missions at Asbury Seminary. And the idea back then in my head was if I can't go overseas, I'll promote missions. So I started that trajectory with that idea that maybe I would become a missions pastor. And in the course of that study and time, the Lord did something in Andy's heart. We had been married for five years already. And I feel like all the pieces just kind of came together little by little. And then when we came to Bolivia, we only came with a two-year commitment. And then the Lord changed that and grew that over time as well. So, yeah, no, there was nothing clear <laughs> from the beginning, just kind of a, a turning towards and a moving little by little towards something greater. That's beautiful and obedient. And uh, Bolivia has a special place in the heart of our family. My father-in-law, Hubert Harriman, grew up in Bolivia. His parents were missionaries with World Gospel Mission. He tells just these amazing stories about being in the jungle and fishing excursions and uh, other adventures that uh, I, I've told him he needs to write a book about. But it's a beautiful country and uh, had the opportunity to be there with him last year, actually. But I, I would love to hear more about your time in Bolivia right now, uh, the work that you're involved in and uh, the ministry work that you do. You kind of gave us a general sketch. What would a day-to-day uh, day-to-day uh, -day activities look like, or is that something that's just 
different every single day, perhaps. <laughs> In Bolivia, there's nothing <laughs> very um, regular, especially right now with COVID. You know, my role has changed significantly over the years, and especially with mothering as well. And and now I've stepped into full-time leadership, but it's it's more now an empowering role for our local staff. And I help mostly with advocacy and fundraising. But on the field, in terms of what's happening, usually outside of COVID, we have a drop-in center that's five stories tall, and it's full with people and busyness. We've got women coming, you know, for emergency situations seeking help. You know, we have shops going on. Uh, we have therapy happening individually in group. We have tutoring for the kids and lots of leadership development activities with them. And then we have had uh, the the business on the ground floor with sewing machines and and factory type work. At night, we have been going to the brothels every week for the majority of our time here. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been core to us. It's been the most important, fundamental piece of our work. And it's expanded through different cities and stuff now. But that's an overview of what we do. And then recently, we've started partnerships with ch local churches, which has been really exciting about mm -hmm. churches who were open to being trained and how to better work with and and meet vulnerable people and receive them into their congregations. Mm -hmm. We have such a, a, a challenge, honestly, in connecting the church with our population. Yes. Um, and I think there was some maybe insecurities on both sides or presuppositions as well on both sides. And so that's been a really beautiful journey in the last year or two of working closely with these churches and connecting girls to faith communities outside of our own. Yes. And this is going to be a very naive question. When you talk about going into brothels, what does that actually look like? Is that ministering to some of the, the victims? What actually occurs when, when you or your team go into a brothel? Yeah. Um, it's probably my most favorite part of our ministry. It's really simple. We we always pray before and after. And in Bolivia, there's not really girls standing out on the street corners as much as you walk into a building. And right. so you walk into the building and kind of push past all the clients and girls are standing in the doorways of different rooms. And our, our purpose is to just be. We, we have said we do not go to these places specifically with an agenda to evangelize or to rescue or even invite them to our drop-in center. So all those things may happen, but really our purpose is to be with her in that place and just to love her there. And so we go and like there's kind of a flow to the brothel. It sounds terrible, but like the way men kind of shuffle in and skim around. And so we just kind of jump into that line. And sometimes it's a very simple smile with eye contact and maybe a small gift. And sometimes it's, hey, how have you been? I haven't seen you forever. And how are your kids? And I, I kind of rely a lot on intuition and the, and 
the move of the spirit. He seems open to talking. We'll talk. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's an honor to be invited into her room and we have more intimate conversations and often we pray and we can cry together and we can listen. And other times it's just, hi, we're here. We're thinking of you. And it seems like you're busy. You need to work. So we'll just let you be. But yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> Sometimes we try to go earlier as well. And maybe we paint fingernails or just hang out. But it's simply a place to be with and rely on whatever the Lord wants to do in that time together. That's really beautiful. Oftentimes, ministry is associated with action. What are you doing? And while you are doing a lot, what I'm hearing you say is a lot of the ministry is presence, which, which is a, a kind of incarnational way of, of thinking about being Jesus Christ to the world and to others and being light in the darkness. And that, that's really lovely. There's a, a staggering statistic on your website that nine out of 10 Bolivian women are expected to be victims of violence in their lifetimes. And it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. I think Bolivia is, has the highest rates of gender violence in all of South America. Um, mm. Yeah, the, it's astronomical. And it mostly happens um, in childhood. And so what we have seen is... Yeah, the root cause of sexual exploitation that we see fairly rampantly starts with um, with pornography and child abuse, child sexual abuse. And then when you add poverty into it, there's a lot of women who, when there's not any other choice, if there's somebody around who says, hey, you can make money here, it's an easy next step. Hmm. Um yeah, it is staggering. And what I wanted to say, too, about what you said about presence is that's exactly the foundation of the ministry. <clears throat> and we probably do that with about 3,000 women per year on the streets or in mm. the health centers. Mm-hmm. But then from there, that's the very first step to a whole long restorative process. So yes. it's just the first step of building trust, building respect, and then opening the doors to lots of opportunities that she might not have considered otherwise. Yes, yes. The the nature of the work you're doing is obviously really difficult. You've said also on your website that many times you've even wanted to quit. And and I just wanted to hear you talk about that. Why is that? But, but also what's kept you going? What's kept you uh, involved? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, who... <laughs> It's hard. Everything about this work is hard. Um, Just simply living overseas, life in Bolivia can be hard. But I don't know. It's worthwhile to me. I feel like it's hard because it's super inconvenient. You got to be really flexible. Nothing works the way it should. But it's also hard because you're walking closely with and in solidarity with really broken people. And that can wear on you. So we've learned a lot about self-care along the way, a lot about clinging to Jesus, who always had people pulling on Him and needing something from Him. But I think we stay because, gosh, 
I love it. I love seeing what God can do. Mm-hmm. I love being a part of it. Uh, we had a we had a situation this year. Um, COVID hit Bolivia really, really hard. I think we had a 580% increase in deaths this year at one point of the year. It was, it was terrible. And we had a a 13 year old girl who was in our program. Her mother's in our program, her little sister's in our program. And she hit a wall and, and went suicidal and ran away from home. And, moments after she had taken pills, she called our educator, who's been a mentor and a discipler and has been walking with her virtually all year long. And she just said a last goodbye um, from a random phone from a city eight hours away um, by bus. And so our team getting that phone call was able to very quickly contact authorities, trace the number, and find her, and she's home now. And Mm -hmm. that happened right before Christmas. Yes. And like, COVID has been really hard. And so, to like, stay in the hard, keep walking with people, keep trying to keep your head above water yourself, and then see how God works because of that or through that. Ugh. I mean, it's a great life. It's really wonderful. (laughs) It's a great encouragement. Part of my graduate uh, studies was in economics. And when economists talk about sex trafficking, they tend to talk about it from a demand side, primarily because from a supply and demand standpoint, if we're lowering the supply, which is a terrible euphemism for these poor uh, women victims, um, but demand stays constant, that's going to increase the price that's actually benefiting uh, sex traffickers. And so there tends, at least with economists, tends to be some attention on from a demand standpoint, how are you affecting demand? And in your blog, you mention uh, this quote, empty men search for affirmation in all the wrong places. I thought that was really a uh, mm-hmm. fascinating quote. Has Word Made Flesh or any other churches or people you're aware of found significant ways to help the men who perpetuate the the prostitution industry? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it is our desire. (laughs) Sure, sure. Uh, I don't know if we've done it. Um, I think our work with churches is tackling that in one way and that breaking down the stigma of struggles with pornography and how that makes violence more normal, uh, normalizes violence, I would say. Starting to just talk about those things, like helping even victims, male and female victims of sexual assault, speak up, share their stories. Those are small ways we've been able to contribute. But I, what I'm finding and what I would like to dive into further is We have a number of young men and young boys in our children's program. And for a while, we had, you know, funders who said, we're only going to support girl children in your program. And through the years, I've just seen such an importance that if we can change perspectives of young men and young women around what's okay, what's not okay. Yes. If we're working on that 
with the whole family in particular, because a lot of the times mothers, <laughs> um, the way they train and teach and treat their young male children differently from the female children is, is one of the problems too that adds to the whole thing. There's a, a Roman Catholic thinker I've really appreciated, and he has talked about in the fall is where we see objectification of other human beings, among other things. And when we objectify others, now we can violate them. Now we can instrumentalize them. Now we can act Sorry. violent towards them. Mm -hmm. And so I love what you're saying, this idea of learning to re-subjectify other human beings. And even how we think about them and think about their humanity is, is really lovely, but hard work, as, as you've said. I wanted to ask, sex trafficking in general, and this is a good thing, has been elevated in the consciousness of Americans, I would say over the, the last five to 10, 15 years. But a question I, I think that rises often is, okay, what can I do about, what can our average 20 year old student do about that? What can people in the church do about that? What would you say to the, the common American who has been made more aware of the problem, but is not sure what role they might play and being a part of the solution. Yeah. So I think that trafficking is such an ugly beast. It take It's going to take all of us coming together mm -hmm. to work on this. Um, so I think what you're saying about a, an increased awareness is a very good step. And sometimes I think it can get really overwhelming when you just hear a bunch of numbers and forget that they're actually people. Yes. People with families and dreams and children and, and futures. I think that there is a place for every sector to be able to tackle this together. Hmm. Um, how to come together and do that. I think we're just now starting to figure that out. But I think we need economists and bankers and businessmen and, and doctors and nurses and educators and pastors and churches and and just people on the street who know what to see and look out for and can report that. You need justice systems and you need all the pieces to come together to fight this on every realm. So I would say to the average citizen, so if you're aware there's there's a problem, mm -hmm. learn as much as you can and then start just checking out. If you're if you're a graphic designer, if you're a photographer, I mean it, whatever you're doing, there are ways to jump into this fight um, from your place. Mm -hmm. I think I think it needs everybody. So we need people on the ground but we need people who are just speaking up at church and connecting the resources. I think there's a lot out there. And I think it just, if anybody cares, there's plenty. You can start with us. You can start with Word Mayflesh Bolivia. But beyond that, we can help direct you to further resources of how to use your gifts to fight this together. Yes. You, you said something at the very beginning that made me smile as a, a business professor, former business professor, when we talk about how we achieve socially desirable ends, advocacy, activism, thinking about legal levers that can be pulled. Uh, but oftentimes we don't talk about the commercial realm and what are some marketplace mechanisms that can be used to lift people out of poverty, dignify them, 
and uh, create a sustainable future for them. So you mentioned the micro enterprise that you've been involved with. And I, I was wondering if you would take just a moment to, to talk about that. Yeah. So we, um, we were on the streets meeting with these girls, getting to know them, listening to their stories. And some of them were just looking at us like, okay, so what are you going to do about it? And instead of kind of being the gringos that come in again with a solution, you know, to fix all your problems, like I really, really believe in empowering people to change their realities. And so Suthisana was, is a business opportunity where women who choose to leave the streets, they have um, months of therapy and training on personal and professional levels to be able to find employment off the streets and flourish in that. Um, and so women come and they're trained and then they are put on sewing machines or <laughs> put on a, at a sales venue and they have an opportunity for employment that they would not have otherwise had. So Suthisana um, exports beautiful handbags and purses and everything's handmade by a woman who was a victim of sexual exploitation. Mm, and mm. now she and her children are walking in freedom. Amen. So if, if some of our listeners wanted to uh, check out their products, uh, they could go to, uh, I believe, www.sutisana.com to, to check out some of yes. those products and assist these women. Andrea, I wanted to tell you a couple of years ago, I was in Santa Cruz with my father-in-law and we were at a university, the Evangelical University in Bolivia. And mm -hmm. talking with some of the people there, its conception was a graduate named Meredith Shefflin from Asbury College, mm -hmm. who was uh, <laughs> called to go into Bolivia and against many odds, uh, start a Christian school. And I was just blown away that there's a high school and there's now a university uh, with thousands of students who are being trained to go and uh, add value in their community and, and in the larger society. And of course, doing it uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, and how this was all a woman who had a vision and had a call. And I just wanted to tell you uh, something similar that uh, someone down the road will say, uh, Andrea and her husband uh, went into Bolivia with a vision and look at the fruit that they have blessed others with. So uh, this has been great to talk with you today, but beyond just speaking with you, please know our hearts are filled with gratitude. And um, I'm so excited for the work you're doing and excited to see the continued kingdom fruit that is born out of what you do. Thank you so much. Asbury changed my life. And I don't think we would be where we are if it weren't for the seeds that were planted and rooted in that place. Some of our closest community and friends and supporters are still Asbury <laughs> friends mm. and graduates. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much Asbury means to me personally. So it's you guys, um, you guys are Asbury was part of, um, was the beginning of all of it. Um, hmm. So it's really been beautiful. 
We hope you were as touched by that interview as we were. If you want to hear more from that conversation with Andrea, you're invited to listen to the episode eight bonus recording for her powerful answers to a couple additional questions. Remember to email us at belong at asbury.edu if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Our next podcast will be part two of Dr. Brown's discussion of why studying Aristotle's centuries-old concept of virtue is so vital today. We invite you to join Dr. Brown for that conversation next time on Belonging and Becoming, a production of Asbury University. Music